informing America's farmers and ranchers. It's Adams on Agriculture, produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Here's your host, Mike Adams. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Adams on Agriculture. Thank you for joining us and letting us be part of your day. We are in Houston today for the National Ethanol Conference, and uh, those in attendance here just uh, had a session with former President George Bush, which has been a real highlight. Of course, he has a great history with uh, the renewable fuels industry, signing into law the renewable fuels standard. So that was a big event here today. We have lots to talk about for the ethanol industry, some uh, challenges from uh, 2019 that carry over into 2020, but also some hope, some optimism moving forward. Our broadcast today brought to you by Syngenta, makers of Inogen. We're going to be talking a lot about Inogen throughout the program today as well. But we're going to start things off with Scott Richmond. He is the chief economist for the Renewable Fuels Association. And Scott, thanks for joining us. You know, 2019 was a challenging year for sure for the ethanol industry. Lots of headwinds, including uh, the small refinery exemptions. But yet you have new numbers out showing that even with all the challenges, the ethanol industry supported nearly 350,000 jobs and generated almost $43 billion, with a B, $43 billion in gross domestic product in 2019. Pretty impressive numbers. Absolutely. And, Mike, on behalf of the RFA, I'd like to welcome you to uh, the 2020 National Ethanol Conference. We've got quite a program, as you mentioned, uh, starting off with former President George W. Bush and getting into uh, a lot of uh, information about the uh, the energy sector and about ethanol in particular and policy. So it's going to be a great uh, it's going to be a great program. But as you mentioned, uh, we did release a study that was done for uh, the RFA yesterday, and it took a look at uh, the industry's economic impact uh, in 2019. And despite the challenges that you alluded to, uh, we really did have uh, this this industry has reached scale. And we had a really substantial economic impact, uh, 350,000 jobs uh, that we support, $43 billion that we contribute to GDP, and $23 billion that we contribute to, uh, to incomes. And so those are real substantial numbers. We did have some challenges, but uh, uh, as you mentioned, uh, there are a lot of things to be optimistic about turning, turning the page toward 2020. And I think a lot of people still don't understand and realize how important the ethanol industry has become to our general economy, and especially in rural America. Yeah, I've uh, in my uh, pre- previous life, previous career, I visited a tremendous number uh, of ethanol plants in rural communities and worked with them uh, on their financials and uh, and met with people who were investors uh, in ethanol plants. And I can just tell you that. Uh, in a lot of these uh, smaller communities and rural areas in Iowa, South Dakota, Nebraska, and on through the eastern Corn Belt, uh, these plants and the jobs and the incomes that they provide are vitally important for uh, for those communities. And I, that's something that gets lost a little bit in the overall numbers, but it's vitally important. Yeah, that economic activity, right, that stimulus, those jobs, and that uh, turns into spending in rural communities and the tax base and on and on. I mean, it, it's it's huge for rural America. It is, and there's there's only a moderate amount of the economic activity. There's a certain amount that's directly related to, uh, to the ethanol industry, but when you include uh, the agriculture, the, the farmers that, uh, that it supports for, uh, for uh, providing feedstock, mainly corn, also some sorghum, uh, if you look at, uh, at 
the support industries for that fertilizer seed uh, and 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 uh, and on on like that and you look at some of the other uh, you look at some of the other uh, industries that it supports just you know hospitals restaurants uh, other things in rural communities that otherwise might not be doing quite as well uh, it really supports an ecosystem there's a feeling here I think of cautious optimism that this is going to be a, a much better year for the ethanol industry. I think it really stands a chance of that. We had some troubles last year uh, due to the, mainly to two things, small refinery exemptions and trade issues. The main one on trade was China, but there were other trade issues. As we look forward, uh, the 2020 rule for the renewable fuel standard went part of the way toward trying to rectify the small refinery situation, but we're going to have uh, a presentation later this afternoon uh, where there's going to be a discussion of we just won what I think is a vital uh, court case in the 10th in the Circuit uh, Court uh, regarding small refinery exemptions where the judges really um, uh, judges really said that uh, what had been done in those three cases was uh, was not allowable, uh, and you know China's going through some struggles right now. But we have the Phase One trade deal with them, and once they get past their current struggles, we're hopeful that uh, exports will pick up as well. Yeah, we'll be talking about that with uh, Under Undersecretary McKinney tomorrow. Scott, always good to talk with you. Thank you very much. That's Scott Richmond, Chief Economist for the Renewable Fuels Association. I mentioned our broadcast today brought to you by Syngenta, makers of Enogen. Jeff Roskam joins me now, Enogen Biofuels Account Manager. Jeff, thanks for joining us. Enogen's been around for a while now, uh, although, we're, as we're going to talk about today, certainly a lot of things happening there. Give us a little bit of a background, a little bit of history on Enogen. Well, thank you, Mike. Uh, I'm just pleased to be able to support uh, the ethanol industry and the biofuels industry and, and uh, American farmers and growers. Uh, the Enogen uh, product was uh, became deregulated in 2011, and uh, 2016 we entered the feed market in addition to the fuel market with Enogen. So uh, currently there's about uh, 750,000 acres planted to Enogen, and uh, about a third of that goes to the uh, biofuels business, and about two-thirds of that's going to the livestock industry where uh, it has tremendous, it really does the same thing, Mike. Uh, breaks that starch corn uh, in corn down to glucose so either the yeast or the animal can metabolize that so do you s- we're going to talk about where you're going with Enogen as we go along in our program today but uh, uh, you've already come quite a ways with it in just a few years mm-hmm. we have it was a launch period that began in 2011 with deregulation and uh, now we're entering the second phase of it where we're beginning to focus more on the sustainability mm-hmm. side of it and the platform of Enogen. So it's not just the product of Enogen, but it's the contracting platform uh, where, where uh, that identity preserved grain is, is uh, identity clearly uh, in a supply chain that goes straight to the ethanol plant. Typical ethanol plant, uh, you know, it contributes when they buy their enzyme from the local growers could make it, you know, uh, an investment of in their fi- 500 to 500,000 to a million dollars of enzyme purchases a year. And you're building those relationships, those partnerships with farmers, right? Absolutely, yep. And our growers, our channel suppliers, Golden Harvest and NK, and their sales representatives, uh, all an important parts of the uh, uh, supply chain to uh, deliver that opportunity to the growers. You still see a bright future for the ethanol industry in general and Enogen in particular? We do, and uh, you know it's it's a time of uh, you know stress in terms of margins right now, uh, but we see great progress being made uh, despite you know. 
uh, challenges in, in the uh, export markets of China, but also we, we're optimistic that uh, it, we'll see the exports going to Mexico in, in some time in the future. We don't know exactly when. We're going to talk a lot more about Energen on our program today. Jeff, thanks a lot. Thank you. Thanks very much. Jeff Roskam, Energen Biofuels Account Manager for Syngenta. Again, our broadcast today from here at the National Ethanol Conference in Houston brought to you by Syngenta, makers of Energen. Coming up next, we're going to talk about the Midwest clean fuel policy. Stay with us here on AOA. Weeds want to restrict your freedom and crush the spirit of your soybeans. Never fear. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of superior weed control is here with Liberty Herbicide. Stand proud with greater application flexibility, unmatched convenience, and excellent performance combined with the Liberty Link, Liberty Link GT27, and Enlist E3 trait systems. And it has no known resistance in U.S. row crops. Talk with your BASF rep or authorized retailer about Liberty Herbicide. Always read and follow label directions. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams. And welcome back. We're in Houston for the National Ethanol Conference. And joined now by Brendan Jordan. He's Vice President, Transportation and Fuels for the Great Plains Institute. And he joins us now to talk about the Midwest clean fuel policy. Brendan, thank you for joining us. Uh, we're starting to hear more about this. Uh, kind of fill us in. What is this uh, clean fuel policy for the Midwest? Well, thanks, Mike. I'm really happy to be here today. Uh, maybe it's worth starting with kind of what is a clean fuel policy at all. And so in the biofuels industry, we're used to the renewable fuel standard, uh, which has been a, a crucial policy for advancing the industry and helping it to expand the renewable fuel standard is based on volumes. We want X billion gallons of fuel by X date. Uh, a clean fuel policy is based on carbon. So a clean fuel policy says we want a certain level of, of uh, carbon reduction from our fuel system. It, it, it's also different than a, than a renewable fuel standard in the sense that it's technology and fuel, fuel neutral. So it actually supports a whole variety of, of different types of low carbon fuels and uh, really does not pick winners and losers, uh, it, and it relies on a portfolio approach. So, yeah, We're, we're hearing about low-carbon fuel policies, yep. especially in California That's and right. on the West Coast, and some, I think, on the East Coast. Uh, not as much in the Midwest. Uh, why is that? Is, is it just now getting to the Midwest or just now becoming more of a priority for the Midwest? That, that's a great question. Uh, you know, California went first. And I think if you, you know, talk with stakeholders in the, in the Midwest, there was a certain amount of suspicion. Skepticism. And skepticism. Yeah. Is the California Air, Air Resources Board going to get this right? Are the credit prices going to be high enough to make any difference? And, and I think as time has passed on, you, you know, more and more people in the industry are realizing, you know, this market offers value for us. We can, we can provide California with the carbon reductions they want, and uh, we can continue to innovate and lower our, our carbon footprint. And so there has been growing interest. And in, uh, so you started with California, then you had Oregon, Washington's looking at this, uh, but you're starting to see it move beyond. Uh, so Colorado, New York, but you know, really a couple years ago, uh, we started having some conversations with, uh, you know, uh, American Coalition for Ethanol, Renewable Fuels Association about, you know, should we start looking at doing something in the Midwest and how would we do this differently? 
we're not going to do it the same way that California does it. Because the feeling, at least early on, when California was coming up with their low-carbon fuel policy, I think the fear and the concern was this is going to kind of be negative towards uh, ethanol. That's right. Uh, but now you're starting. We're starting to see the opportunity it could be for ethanol, right? Well, I just think it's really interesting to think about if if this were going to be designed by Midwesterners, keeping taking into account our our industries, our natural resources, we are going to do it differently. Um, California has, in some ways, picked their favorite technologies, and and uh, you know, it's ideally it's technology neutral. But maybe they put their their toe on the scale for the certain technologies they like better, and. You know, our stakeholders have been really interested in something that's truly technology neutral. If biofuels can offer a carbon reduction, they should be uh, compensated for that. Yeah, because this is kind of what I've been watching here is as this develops more for this push for low carbon fuels, it seems like all the attention and the emphasis has been on batteries and electric Mm -hmm. and things like that. Not that there's not a place for those, but it seemed like, okay... Where's the discussion about biofuels in this? This kind of gets us in that, into that arena, right? Well, it's really been interesting to watch the policy play out in California because even though they, I think they have tipped the scales a little bit for, their, for electric vehicles and other technologies, what, what do you think is the number one generator of low-carbon credits in the California market? Corn ethanol. And number two is biodiesel. Wow. Um, you know, ethanol blending is limited in California. They only allow E10. Uh, so I think you'd see even more credit generation if they could expand, expand blending in that market. Uh, biodiesel was allowed to expand blending and, and went from virtually zero to about 15% in a, in a relatively short time frame. So I, I think it's, it's shown that even though you value carbon, it can lead to uh, more volume as well and some of the other benefits. Well, I know talking with folks in the bio, biodiesel industry, they're very excited about this. They're, they're looking at a lot of growth uh, in the next few years, and a lot of it because of that uh, low-carbon fuel policy in California and some other states. All right, so let's bring it back to the Midwest. Yes. Uh, how will it work here in the Midwest, and uh, what, are, what do you see as the opportunities in the Midwest? Well, uh, we've, we've had a dialogue for about two years uh, w- with strong involvement from agriculture and the biofuels industry. Uh, we've reached consensus on a, on a vision and some preliminary design principles. And the group has continued to grow. You know, first meeting, there were probably, you know, 15, 20 people. Our, our last meeting, we had about 120 people get together in Minneapolis. And so it, it's continuing to grow, but this is still a new subject for a lot of people. So our next step is really to to continue to engage and bring more people in, uh, get more input. Uh, and we will start be starting to engage with policymakers at the state level in multiple states in the Midwest. And just to start the conversation, we're not uh, introducing legislation immediately, but I think, you know, uh, it's education phase right now. I think this is a really promising approach. So what would it require different than what we see now in the Midwest? I guess it would depend on what future legislation may come about. That's right. But, you know, the idea here is uh, we're going to be stronger by forming some alliances so, you know, we've shown that, you know, if you, if you do this carbon-based approach, uh, if you bring in some of the other industries, including, you know, the electric vehicle industry, renewable natural gas, um, electric utilities, automakers, that you, you can have a broader coalition. And I think that's really what it's going to take to move us all forward is, uh, you know, understanding what everyone else, you know, 
put, putting putting forward a, a, a program that benefits a variety of groups in some way gives us a better chance of success. We're talking with Brenda Jordan, Vice President, Transportation and Fuels for the Great Plains Institute, talking about uh, the developing Midwest clean fuel policy. So, Brendan, if if the goal then, if everybody decides in, in the Midwest, okay, we want lower carbon fuel policy too, mm-hmm. whatever that may be, mm-hmm. and I guess that would be state to state, or are you looking at uh, kind of something for the whole Midwest? Uh, well, that's a, a little bit of a complicated question. Uh, ultimately, authority to pass policy rests with states. Right. So states will have to, if they want to move forward, they'll have to do a rulemaking at the governor's level or, or pass legislation. The stakeholders in the Clean Fuels Initiative have really supported the idea of regional coordination. Uh, we want to have a program that's that has some alignment and consistency and not create you know, separate policies and markets right. in every state. So I think that's up to up us as a as an initiative to really encourage a common approach. That's why we've put this white paper out laying out some principles that states could rely on. So when when that is worked out, what's the end result? Uh, higher blends of that's right of ethanol that's right. say or, and biodiesel being used in these states? Yeah, if you if you could put in place a clean fuel policy in the Midwest, it would set up a very powerful incentive for higher blends of ethanol and biodiesel we would start to see renewable diesel uh, arrive in our region where it really hasn't so far uh, we would see significant growth in uh, renewable natural gas and and you know we'd also see some growth in electric vehicle adoption uh, electric electricity is a clean fuel we need to evaluate it in a, with consistent standards but that that industry gets to grow too and really what we've learned is it's not a threat um, if we can continue to expand biofuel blending, uh, we can also expand electrification at the same time, and everyone gets to win. That's an interesting point, because I think early on I was like, wait a minute, uh, are we all going all electric and battery, and then where does that leave the biofuels industry? That's right. Uh, it's, so it's not either or here. It can be both. Well, we've really learned, too, that if you if really what you want is carbon reductions, uh, the, the, the really, the early... Uh, carbon reductions you get are from biofuels. Uh, it's going to take a lot longer for the electric vehicle sector to grow significantly. And one thing we know, the emphasis and the push on on these kind of issues is going to continue to grow. That's right. right. I mean, the That's environmental right. issues. And so here's a chance for the biofuels industry to to uh, kind of be out in front on this and say, hey, we're, we can we can contribute here to reducing these Absolutely. greenhouse gases and Absolutely. we can lower carbon, right? We're part of the solution. Yeah, because it seems like some are kind of talking about everything but biofuels, and that's been my concern is will biofuels be left out of this and not be able to take advantage of this great opportunity? But it sounds like with policies like this, it yes. really puts biofuels right there at the table. Well, I think you're absolutely right about leadership coming from industry. I, I think that's how you stay at the table instead of being on the menu is uh, really engaging. And the industry really has come forward uh, to be part of the conversation. Well, I think it's great. And rather than a threat, as you said, this is an opportunity. I believe that. All I right. really believe that. Brendan, thank you. Thank you. Brendan Jordan, Vice President, Transportation and Fuels for Great Plains Institute, talking about the uh, forming Midwest clean fuel policy. Stay with us. More to come from here in Houston at the National Ethanol Conference on AOA.
Time now for a market check here on Adams on Agriculture. I'm Rusty Halverson from the American Ag Network. Wheat futures at the Board of Trade trending lower, thanks in part to Egypt's decision to go with Romanian wheat in its latest tender. March soybeans climb modestly higher on Monday. The March contract retracing a small portion of the hefty selling wave that unfolded from the 961 high back on January 2nd. Higher forecast for Brazilian soybean production by Brazilian crop agency Conab may be reflected by USDA's WASD report that comes out on Tuesday. Conab raising its forecast for the Brazilian crop to 123.2 million metric tons, up a million from last month's forecast, up almost 10 million from last year's crop. March soybeans at the Board of Trade an hour into the day. Penny and a half higher, 885 and three quarters. November at 919 and a half, up a quarter of a cent. March corn down a penny and a quarter at 380 and a half. December at 392, down a penny and a half. Chicago wheat, March down four at 548. Kansas City, March down three and three quarters, 468 and three quarters. Minneapolis spring wheat, March down a penny and three quarters at 532. For livestock at the Merck and live cattle futures, April contract down 40 at 118.27. Cash cattle activity remains at a standstill in the central and southern plains. Feeder cattle, March contract 62 higher, 136.32. Lean hog futures, April down 47 at 64.60. On Wall Street, the Dow up. 112 points, NASDAQ up 64, S&P up 21, March crude oil up 96 cents a barrel. You're listening to AOA. I'm Rusty Halverson for the American Ag Network. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now back to Mike Adams. Welcome back. We're in Houston for the National Ethanol Conference. Our broadcast today brought to you by Syngenta, makers of Inogen. Joining us now is McCord Panconan, head of strategic accounts for Syngenta. And McCord, thanks for joining us. Uh, we talked earlier with Jeff Roskam about the history of Inogen. Uh, we've seen a lot of development and growth over the years. Bring us up to date. Where are we now? Absolutely, Mike, and uh, thanks for uh, having me on and, and obviously supporting the industry here at the RFA. So, yeah, we're we're growing our uh, base and uh, obviously providing um, new profits for growers and expanding our efficiencies not only um, – in the feed uh, segment, but also the fuel segment. So really what we're focused on is obviously bringing uh, increased efficiencies within the ethanol process itself, um, but also efficiencies within the, the feed segment as well, basically putting more pounds on beef and also um, allowing dairy farmers to uh, produce more milk. So when you talk with farmers about being part of the program, what do you, what do you talk with them about? Well, it's really about, uh, you know, really bringing the, the opportunity for uh, price stability within, you know, the current agricultural economy. So basically it's been a, a positive, really increasing profits to, to their growers and to their businesses um, within their, uh, on their farms. For those listening that still aren't really, really familiar with Antigen, tell us a little bit more about it. Yeah, absolutely. So Antigen is, is a unique product and really what it was designed to do was to allow ethanol producers to be more efficient with their process and at the same time secure grain 
uh, within their process, but really marry the grower to the ethanol plant in a deeper um, fashion. And what we found through the, that process is that uh, ethanol producers are obviously taking a, a more in-depth approach to how they procure grain and so opened up some new platforms, if you will, on how they're doing that. So not only does Enogen help within the, the, the process and, and in terms of efficiency, bringing enzyme to their plant and helping their process, but it also has helped uh, securing grain uh, in terms of uh, procurement platforms. And the feed aspect of it, talk a little bit more about that. Absolutely. So an expanding area for us in 2016 it was, is uh, Enogen Feed was launched, and what we found was by doing some trials, uh, we found some pretty significant benefit in, in the uh, beef uh, segment, but also in the dairy segment recently. And so we've uh, seen some exponential growth um, in, in, that, in that phase. So basically what a beef producer or a dairy farmer uh, could expect is, is to see more product uh, from using Enogen. We're going to talk more about Enogen in just a bit. McCord, stay there, and we'll get back to you in just a moment. That's McCord Panconan, Head of Strategic Accounts for Syngenta, makers of Enogen. Joining us now is Troy Bradenkamp. He's Executive Director of Renewable Fuels Nebraska. Um, the Renewable Fuels Association and Renewable Fuels Nebraska and Pheasants Forever have announced the launch of a pilot project in collaboration with Field to Market called the Alliance for Sustainable Agriculture, and this is to expand pollinator habitat. Troy, thanks for joining us. Tell us about this program. Well, Mike, thanks for having me. I really appreciate this opportunity. Renewable Fuels Nebraska, we're the trade association for Nebraska's 25 ethanol plants, uh, second leading uh, ethanol producing state in the nation. Obviously, corn is a very important aspect to us. So when we were approached with this concept of putting together a uh, pollinator uh, program with other uh, stakeholders, we really jumped on this opportunity. Um, as many of you know, pollinators are critical part of, of our ecosystem, particularly in the Midwest. Uh, there's some pressure on the monarch butterfly uh, as potentially being listed under the Threatened and Endangered Species Act. We certainly don't want to see that in corn country. And obviously the pressure that's been put on the bees and the pollinating uh, species like that uh, as well uh, has been in the news lately. So we thought this would be an opportunity for us uh, in the ethanol business to at least demonstrate uh, how much this is a very important issue to us, and, and we're proud to be a part of this program. What are some of the things that participating ethanol plants will be doing? So what our participating plants will do, and we're looking for at least a half dozen to a dozen of our 25 ethanol plants eventually being part of this, but what they will do is they will set up a demonstration plot uh, on property actually at the ethanol plant, and those uh, demonstration plots will be at least five acres, uh, but we're hoping that they'll be in a, a place where they're in a high visibility traffic area. Uh, as you know, there are uh, hundreds of trucks being delivering, they're delivering corn on a daily basis. So we thought that the ethanol plant would be a great location to put in these uh, pollinating uh, plots. Um, and then obviously that would be an opportunity to uh, to discuss with those farmers what is going on there, what is that over there, um, and get their interest in, involved. And then obviously we've got partners with the Nebraska Corn Board and the Nebraska Corn Growers uh, where they take it to that next phase, which is let's 
talk to your growers about what you could be doing with maybe some marginal land on the edge of the fields, uh, maybe a pivot corner, something like that that's not in great production. Uh, let's talk about what it would take to put that in a pollinator habitat um, and get some of those pollinators attracted to that area because, again, the goal is to make sure that we don't uh, lose those pollinators long-term uh, and obviously have any kind of regulatory burden placed on us long-term. So so you're just getting started with this now? We really are. This is the launch of this program. We've been in contact uh, and in discussions with uh, Field to Market with Renewable Fuels Association and us here uh, in Nebraska, but then also with our partners with Nebraska Corn Board and Corn Growers, and then Pheasants Forever. So it's really a unique uh, partnership coming together. Uh, we've kind of laid out what that plan is going to look like. Now this launch is, is that point where we now start to get our plant signed up to actually put these plots in, and then the education component will follow that with the farmers that are going to be delivering grains to those uh, facilities and looking out at those plots and saying, what's going on there? We want to be part of that. So this is something that you said you're just getting started. You, you're hoping this is going to continue to grow, right? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Like I said, our goal, I think, is to have at least 1,000 acres uh, uh, identified in a pretty short order. We will start that at the uh, half dozen or so ethanol plants with the demonstrator plots. But the big payoff, obviously, is when the corn grower uh, says, you know what, this is important to me as well. Uh, we're going to put some of our acres into this kind of a production uh, uh, vegetation uh, to make sure that we're getting those pollinators at a good uh, population within our uh, area as well. Sends a message, too, that the ethanol industry is uh, is very uh, concerned about pollinators and uh, certainly wanting to do all it can to uh, help protect them. Oh, absolutely. I mean, we, we will go toe-to-toe with any uh, supply out there in terms of we, we think from an environmental perspective, we are as good as it gets uh, for a transportation fuel. And this just lends right into that, that story of, of ours of being renewable, uh, being good on the environment, and, and certainly the pollinator uh, plots that we plan to put in and our growers will be putting in just uh, continue that story. How can people get more information about it? Well, I would certainly go to Field to Market. If you're in Nebraska, be looking for those plants that you're delivering to to be putting uh, these uh, these pollinator plots in this spring and then be asking your questions locally. Uh, certainly get a hold of me at Renewable Fuels Nebraska. You could get someone at Nebraska Corn Board or Corn Growers. Uh, we're starting this in Nebraska because we just have a great, Uh, synergy amongst these groups to get this done but we're hoping that Nebraska would then become that pilot for other states to follow that are going to have the ethanol industry obviously corn um, and the groups that can come together to replicate what we're hoping to do in Nebraska. Very good. Troy Camp, Executive Director of Renewable Fuels Nebraska uh, telling us about this RFA Nebraska pollinator program along with Pheasants Forever Uh, We hope to see that grow. Thank you very much. Thank you, Mike. Appreciate it. All right. And again, um, bring back uh, McCord Panconan, head of strategic accounts for Syngenta. We'll talk a little bit more about Inogen. Um, 
McCord, you were telling us about uh, some of the things that have developed over the years with Enogen, but I know you're hoping to take this program to a whole other level, aren't you? Yes, we certainly are. And, and one of the things we've done with our fuel segment is, is allowed uh, more flexible um, terms with our ethanol producers, basically allowing them to pick some of the, the criteria and how they want to introduce Enogen to the ethanol plant. Um, on the feed side, uh, as I mentioned earlier, yeah, it's taken off exponentially. And so we are currently um, in the process of working with a lot of universities on studies to make sure that we have the proper um, uh, academia that goes along with the, those results and, and how we can actually show uh producers beef and dairy on what those results actually look like you feel like you're just scratching the surface I, I, I actually do I think early on uh, in the Enogen days when we first rolled this uh, technology to the industry it was focused on the ethanol industry mm-hmm. and since as mentioned uh, you know 2016 we roll it out to feed and we see this exponential kind of growth model take place which is exciting but at the same time, you want to uh, you want to continue to to look at what's next, and and so that's what we're focused on is continued research, obviously investment in this uh, technology, and to see where it can go, because really our end state is this is that we want the grower, the ethanol plant, and obviously uh, animal producers um, to be able to benefit from the technology. Where can they get more information on Enogen? We can go to our website at uh, Syngenta.com or uh, get, obviously get a hold of me as well and uh, or your local rep, um, uh, NK uh, Golden Harvest or Enogen rep. A lot of good partnerships around the ethanol industry. McCord Panconan, head of strategic accounts for Syngenta. Thanks. I appreciate it, Mike. Thanks for having me. Stay with us. More coming up from the National Ethanol Conference in Houston. Farmers can't choose the weather, trade policy, or market prices, but they can choose the most advanced dicamba with confidence. Ingenia Herbicide has the lowest volatility of all dicamba salts for more successful on-target applications, and it's straight from the dicamba experts, BASF. So make the confident choice for your soybean crop. Talk to your BASF rep or authorized retailer. Ingenia Herbicide is a U.S. EPA restricted-use pesticide. Additional state restrictions may apply. Always read and follow label directions. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams. Welcome back. We are in Houston for the National Ethanol Conference. Our broadcast today brought to you by Syngenta, makers of Enogen. Joining me now is Robert White, Vice President, Industry Relations for the Renewable Fuels Association. Good start to things today with former President Bush. Yeah, it was a, uh, it was amazing. He he is quite a storyteller, uh, very articulate, and uh, had a lot of good jokes. And quite a history with this industry, with his signing of the RFS. That's exactly right. It's amazing how many people have forgotten that history or or what party uh, got us going. But really, 2005 and 2007 both signed by George W. So uh, that was a great way to kick things off here and. You know, after a challenging 2019, and that's putting it mildly, uh, there were some accomplishments, there were some uh, victories, and now some hope going into 2020 that the court ruling recently uh, on the small refinery exemptions, that has to give a lot of hope moving forward. Yeah, big day. I mean, it's it's amazing. I, I just like most, were ready to put, uh, ready to put 2019 in the rear view, no doubt. 
uh, 2020s. Uh, we, we obviously got E15 year-round. It was not a, for sure a loss by any means, but the small refinery exemptions just didn't stop. Uh, but with the 10th Circuit Court ruling recently, we're still waiting for EPA to kind of tell us where they're going to take that. Um, but it was pretty dang clear that uh, things went wrong and they need to fix it. Uh, some accomplishments. We looked back last year, and that was the year-round sales of E15. And even though it, you know, we w- wish it had started sooner, uh, you can look back and say, hey, we're starting to see the impact already. Yeah, and it, it, we are. And it, the growth and the number of stations, the volumes at those existing stations are, are growing. Uh, but I like to remind everyone that it, this is, takes time. You know, we, we were working on E10 for 30-plus years. E15 is not a light switch. I'd love it to be, but it's going to take time. And as people replace equipment, they do that to- those types of things. They're going to integrate it in, but not, it's hard to just go out and change your fuel setup overnight. And USDA now looking for some input on what can be done to help from the infrastructure standpoint what are you hoping to see? Well, we're hoping that it's all inclusive. You know, there were only certain states that were allowed to participate last year. It required matching funds from state entities, which was a challenge in states that are maybe not the best fans of ethanol. Uh, but we're hoping for a na- national program. Big, little, uh, medium-sized retailers can all participate. And it's all about higher blends. It can be E15. It can be E85. It can be both. Uh, we just want to lay infrastructure that is still useful uh, in years to come. Robert, you do a great job of working with different groups uh, to promote ethanol. We talk to you each year when you're at the bike rally out in Sturgis, and uh, uh, just it's amazing the number of ways that you're trying to reach consumers about ethanol. Well, it, it has to be very strategic. We don't have the funds that the petroleum industry is, is throwing at us. In fact, not even a, a high percentage. And so we have to be very strategic and targeted. Obviously, the Sturgis Motorcycle Rally has been a great one. We've seen the efforts of the American Motorcyclist Association get muted a lot. Their membership is way down. I think the flamethrower uh, sort of attitude that they've had against us is, has cost them some members. Uh, we do a lot with Crappie Masters. They're actually here as well. Uh, speak on a panel with me this afternoon. Uh, we're up to, we went from 16 tournaments last year to 87 this year. So wow. a lot lot of more states, a lot stronger reach. And then, of course, our project with Hawk Designs, uh, this nearly 1,200 horsepower Jeep Wrangler that we have down uh, downstairs was not only fun to move in the building, but uh, it's, I'm anxious for everyone to get a peek at it. And we're going to try some new things this year. Uh, we're going to uh, Summerfest, the largest outdoor music festival up in Wisconsin. They average about a million a year. And this is across all demographics. But guess guess who likes music festivals? Millennials. It's their number one uh, thing they're spending money on. They don't want anything to, to own. They want the experience. So we're just looking at new ideas and ways to reach more. You know, we talked earlier uh, with Brendan Jordan about the, the Midwest clean fuel policy uh, and how early on that low-carbon uh, fuel policy idea and concept seemed like it might uh, be the enemy of biofuels. And really, it, now we're starting to see the opportunities that are going to be created by it. Well, I mean, just look at California. We were almost not allowed to be in the state, and now it's the only thing keeping their low-carbon fuel standard afloat. So now they're looking at E15. They're almost being forced into it. So you bring all the lessons learned from the West Coast into the Midwest, and w- what, or no matter what your position is on climate change, it is now a point of are you sitting at the table or are you going to be dinner? And we do not want to be in a bad position here, so we're laying the groundwork. We're being out in front and playing the offense a little bit, which is 
always tough in the ethanol industry, uh, but we think there's some unique opportunities that position us for the future. I can think back many, many years ago when we were really just getting started, and we were still pushing E10, let alone E15, E85 as we are now. But I heard people talking in hallways at meetings like this, you know, really E20, E30, that's the sweet spot. That's the blend that would get you the, the fuel efficiency, the environmental greatest environmental benefits you think maybe we're kind of headed that way yeah and i think it's really going to be two things that push it octane and carbon those are the the two uh, sounding points that everyone's using and, and a lot of people come at it from different directions but ultimately our our liquid transportation fuel has to get better it has to not only be something that is economical but it has to have a, a higher octane component if we're going to continue to increase fuel economy and then the cheapest one on the globe is, is ethanol. I think there was a concern that all the attention on batteries and electric cars, where would that leave biofuel? Well, one, you're not going to make that kind of transition overnight anyway. But two, there's there's room for both, isn't there? Absolutely. you got 255 million uh, cars running around, cars, trucks, SUVs running around the countryside. The average lifespan of the vehicle now is 11 years. And guess what's selling the hottest right now? SUVs and trucks. There's going to be a lot of fuel used. We just saw a report out of EIA just last week. They think in 2050 there will be an average of 2 million electric vehicles or uh, battery-powered electric vehicles uh, selling as new vehicles. That's just a lot of fuel to be consumed yet. Yep. Robert, good to see you. Thanks. Thanks, Mike. Robert White, Vice President, Industry Relations for the Renewable Fuels Association. Again, our broadcast today from the National Ethanol Conference in Houston, brought to you by Syngenta, makers of Energen. Back tomorrow, lots more, including USDA Undersecretary Ted McKinney. will talk trade and export opportunities for ethanol. Hope you'll join us right here on AOA. Hi, this is Mike Adams. Thanks for listening to Adams on Agriculture. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world.